And again, we'll be in 1 Corinthians, uh, scripture reading this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And before I read, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, it's good to be in your house this morning. It's good to be with brothers and sisters in Christ. And we pray this morning that you would teach us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. And we pray this morning that uh, you would just pour out your Holy Spirit upon Pastor Adam and help him to preach with boldness and with clarity of thought this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 14. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're continuing our series through the book of Exodus. You can join me this morning in Exodus chapter 3. You remember where we're at at this point. The Israelites are still enslaved uh, by the Egyptians. Moses has, has been alienated from absolutely everybody. He's been alienated from his own people, and he's been alienated from the uh, Pharaoh's home and, Israel, uh, and the Egyptians that he uh, has grown up with. Um, The interesting thing that we've seen so far through these first couple of chapters is that God is clearly aware of what is going on with his people, and he is working behind the scenes. And then we have this amazing story of the burning bush uh, where we see God revealing himself to Moses and calling him to ministry. And so Moses approaches the burning bush. He sees this bush that it's on fire, but it isn't burning out. And so he approaches this uh, burning bush, takes off his shoes, which is an expression of servanthood. Uh, I'm your servant type of a thing. And he takes off his shoes. It's holy ground. He's told not to come any closer. And uh, he hides his face uh, from, this incredible, uh, from this incredible thing. So this morning, what we're going to look at here in the story of the burning bush is to see God revealing his divine name, Yahweh. So let's begin in verse 7 of Exodus chapter 3. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, 
to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, and as we look at these questions, Moses is going to ask a couple of questions about God. His first question is, who am I? And his second question is, who are you? Okay, two pretty good questions. So his first question, verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Let me just say a couple of things here about the first question of Moses. God is calling him to something amazing and extremely intimidating. And so Moses has some questions, some fairly normal questions. And the first one is, who am I? You remember that Moses left Egypt in complete disgrace. Uh, The Jews didn't appear to like him very much. And Pharaoh wanted to kill him. And so the last place that Moses wants to go is Egypt. Presumably a long time. Uh, has taken place between when Moses left and and then when we find him here at the burning bush. It's been a long time. And so he has started a new life and he's got a wife and he's, he's, you know, doing fine. And the last thing on his mind is that he might go back to where he came from, this place that is associated uh, for him with failure and embarrassment and all of this other kind of stuff. And so he's very uncomfortable God is asking Moses to do something very uncomfortable. And his response is to basically say, if I may paraphrase, if I may paraphrase, I'm not sure that I can do this. I don't know that I can do this. I don't know that I want to do this. I don't know that I can do this. You know, there might be something like that in your life or in my life where as a result of hurt, there's just something that you just don't really want to do. A place that you don't really want to go. <laughs> Somebody that you don't really want to talk to. And yet, you know, you have to because it's the right thing to do. And Moses is, is in one of those situations. Egypt for him is connected with a lot of negativity. And it's the last place that he wants to go. So God is asking Moses to do something painful. He's asking Moses to do something really difficult. And in chapter four, this conversation goes for a while. In chapter four, verse 13, Moses said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. So he starts with a few questions like, yeah, but have you thought about this and what about that and so on? And I don't mean to be flippant about Moses' questions or to make them less reverent or whatever than they were. I'm just paraphrasing. He, he has a couple of things he's thinking of. Oh, well, you know, I'm not very eloquent. There might be somebody else more eloquent, whatever. And he tries to think of a lot of things until he finally just get, gets down to the heart of the matter. God, please send someone else. What God is asking Moses to do feels to Moses like it's just too hard and he doesn't want to do it. And he's like, you know what? No offense here. You're God and everything. But can you find somebody else to do this? Because I do not want to go back to Pharaoh's house. It's a little bit humorous because when Moses first saw the burning bush and God called him out of it, you remember what he said? Here am I. So that sounds like, I mean, that's a famous Bible phrase. 
here am I. Abraham said that. Jacob said that. Joseph said that. And after Moses, Isaiah famously says that. Samuel says that. That's a famous Bible phrase. That's kind of like a commissioning phrase. God says, hello, hello. And somebody says, here I am. Here I am. Hey, what can I do? Johnny on the spot. I'm ready to go. And so first he says, sure. Yeah. Hey, whatever. And then he found out what God actually wanted him to do. I think I can relate to that a little bit. You know, and this reminded me as I was thinking through this, this reminded me of when I was about 19, 20, 21, really, uh, you know, I was mentored uh, by a really good guy and we're surrounded by evangelism and discipleship happening all the time. And it was very exciting and imagining what my life would be like. Uh, It would always be, you know, happening in this kind of a religious cocoon where everything is taken care of by an older man and all of that kind of stuff and then you find out what life actually is very exciting to think about god being involved in our lives until he actually gets involved in our lives and then we find out what it means here i am god and god says all right here's the deal Your teenage son is going to hate you and break your heart. And I would like you to love him for decades as Christ, even though he's not going to love you back. Whoa. Was that what we signed up for? Here I am, God. What do you got for me? I got my shoes off. I'm ready. I'm ready to go. Okay, here's the deal. Most of your friends are going to have more money than you. And I would like you to be content and joyful with comparably little your whole life. And trust me. Whoa. (laughs) Wait. God's call sounds very romantic and exciting until we learn what we have been called to. God calls us to very specific situations that are often uncomfortable so that we will trust him. So Moses has concerns. I can relate to these concerns. And it's interesting the way that God responds. Moses' first question is, who am I? You know, who am I? I, There's got to be somebody else that's more qualified or more spiritual or more eloquent or whatever. Who am I? And it's interesting, you know, God's answer to the question, who am I? God's answer is, I will be with you. He almost doesn't even answer the question. The answer to who am I, God says, I will be with you. In other words, it doesn't really matter who you are, Moses, because I'm going on this trip. And that makes all the difference. Peter ends a commentator on Exodus. He says, Moses' assertion that he cannot do this task is correct, but entirely beside the point. He is not doing the saving. All right, so how do we apply this kind of a concept What's the application you get from this? And it's very important that the application not be, since God is with you, you can be successful in whatever you do. That's not the application of this verse. God is with me. God calls me to hard things. And so whatever I do, I'm going to be successful because God is there. That is not what this passage is communicating to us. And anybody who's been around the block with the Lord once or twice uh, knows from experience that that's not how it works. 
The right application from this passage is whatever God tells us to do, he's going to give you the strength to do because he's with us. Whatever God tells us to do, though it may be hard, though he may ask us to do the very thing that we are not psychologically designed to do as a result of hurt or pain or whatever it may be, the one thing, like, look, I'll go anywhere i'll do anything do i have to talk to that guy this afternoon (laughs) while it may be difficult and intimidating and feel like that's something i can't do that is beyond whatever god tells us to do god will give us the strength to do so this then becomes an issue of obedience not name it and claim it Name it and claim it with the Lord is, hey, I want this and I want that. And if I'm close to the Lord, I can snap my fingers and God will give it to me because he's with me and he's all powerful and and all that kind of stuff. That's not what the Bible says. It's actually kind of the opposite of that. We want all this stuff and God says, "Okay, I hear you, but here's what I'm actually calling you to do. And it's going to be difficult, so I'm going to need to go with you here. We're going to be okay. Here we go. Here we go. God arranges our lives into thousands of situations that call for our simple obedience. And many of those situations make us feel like Moses, where we're just like, gosh, please send someone else. And these situations are hard because they involve things like betrayal and chronic pain and failure and boredom and family dysfunction and irritations and tragedy. And these situations, if we're actually going to engage with them as God calls us to, these situations call for superhuman virtue. But if we are obedient to God in those situations, God promises to empower us. Not to make them easy. We watch Moses struggle all the way through the end of his life. God doesn't promise to make stuff easy, but he goes with us. And that is enough. So I'm just wondering, you know, how many of us are kind of standing with our shoes off, ready to serve God, and, and then we find out what it is that he's called us to. Wait, you know, this is what I'm called to? I'm supposed to love this person? I'm supposed to rejoice always? I'm supposed to be content with this? <laughs> I'm supposed to forgive that? I'm supposed to go talk to her? Yeah. Winston Smith says this extraordinary love is engaged in the details of moment to moment ordinary life. We think about calling and we think about people like Moses or, you know, Sean and Carissa or whatever, like, you know, the A team. Right. But I don't have that kind of a calling. I, I, I'm just an ordinary Christian. <laughs> I'm just run of the mill. I don't actually have a calling. But you know that whatever situation you're in is the situation you're called to. And many of those situations are intimidating, but he is with us, which makes this possible, Galatians chapter 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Yeah, that can describe your life. That can describe my life. That's amazing. That's amazing. So Moses is asking a couple of questions. Who am I? And now he's going to say, all right, all right, okay, but who are you? Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, 
If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, which is this same thing, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. That's impressive that I can do that. <laughs> a land flowing with milk and honey. And that's cool. Land flowing with milk and honey. Land f- only flows with milk and honey if people actually have enough peace in their lives that they can play with stuff like that. Right? Because if the economy's a bummer and if the country's at war, there's not a lot of milk and honey around. There's not a lot of wine. There's not a lot of these things that... The Bible's always referring to as, as marked in the, in the promised land. But these things are present in the promised land because God has created a place for them that is safe where they can actually cultivate land and they have extra time that they can apply to things like this. All right, so God is introducing himself basically as the beginning of his relationship here with this group of people who are going to come out of uh, Egypt And he introduces his proper name or his divine name, which is Yahweh. Uh, And and there's a whole bunch of different possibilities of translating this. Uh, There's just four consonants, uh, Y, H, V, H. And we're not sure about the vowels because people were so reverent and thought the name was so important that they forgot how to pronounce it, which honestly doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but that's what happened. And so, uh, so we only have the consonants left, and we're not sure what to do with them. Sometimes it's translated as Jehovah, but that's almost certainly incorrect. It's probably something like, uh, like Yahweh. But whatever it is, this word, this name, Yahweh, is used 6,000 times in the Old Testament. And the way that most of your Bibles do it is, and you'll notice that probably in most of your Bibles here as we read along, when the Lord, when that word Lord is all capitals, then that's Yahweh. And when O-R-D is lower caps, then that's Adonai, which is, which is just Lord. Um, and so whenever you see that all caps, then we're dealing with God's proper name or his divine name, uh, which is probably pronounced as Yahweh. And when God gives his name, he words it several different ways here. There's four different ways that it showed up in what I just read. It could be, and, and they all come from a verb, a Hebrew verb, which is to be. So they, and there's different things you can do with the verb to be. And uh, it could be something like uh, I am. It could be he who is. It could be uh, I am the one who is. It could be uh, I create what I create. There's a bunch of different things we can do with this particular verb and god in this section puts the verb into three different forms just kind of claiming that verb like no matter how you use this verb that's me um 
what is his name and what shall I say to them? And God said to the Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And then you see the all caps Lord that appears later in that paragraph. Now, this name tells us a few things about God, that God has named himself or that God's name is, I'm not sure what came first, chicken or the egg, but God's name is Yahweh. And this tells us a few different things about God. I'm going to list three. I'm sure that there are 50, but I'm going to list three. The first thing is God is eternal and unchangeable. Again, this comes from the verb to be. His name isn't he was. It isn't he will be. In each and every situation, whenever God refers to himself, he says, I am. He is always present and he is always is. He he always is whenever it is. All of us die. God does not. God is eternal. And so this name, I am, refers to his eternity and his unchangeableness. John Frame, the theologian, put it this way. God's presence is temporal. He is present now. God transcends time in important ways, but it's also important to note that God interacts with persons and events in time. God's relation to time is not only transcendent, but also imminent. So God is always, I am. Second thing that we learn from this name, Yahweh, is that God is the self-existent creator. God is the self-existent creator. Philip Ryken, president of Wheaton, said, everything else owes its life and being to God, but God is independent. He does not owe his being or his attributes to anyone else. You see, we derive everything from God. Our virtue, our understanding of reality, our situations, our very lives. We need God to provide food and air and heartbeat, and we need God to provide truth. We're totally dependent on God, really, but God is the one being in the universe who exists outside of the universe and before the universe and independent from the universe. God is the only being in the universe who needs nothing from the universe and actually exists outside of the universe. God is self-existent. We saw the same thing last week when we were looking at the burning bush and wondering why God chose that particular form to appear in at that moment. That flame did not consume the bush, which reveals God's eternity. It didn't consume the bush, and it also reveals God's self-existence. God does not need fuel. God uh, burns, so to speak, with self-existing power. God needs nothing. He is the self-existent creator. So if we put all of this together, the, the symbol or the sign of the burning bush, along with his name, Yahweh, what we see is God introducing himself to Moses and to Israel and to us so that we will know what he is like. And all of this is defining, him, is defining his glory. That will be usually considered to be his ultimate attribute, is his glory. So what is God's glory like? God is glorious, and what what is God's glory? And here he is showing us, through the brightness of the bush, this glorious amazingness of his quality, he's showing us that he is eternal, he is unchangeable, and he is self-existent. And so he he, he reinforces these ideas, not only through just the symbol of the burning bush, but also through the name itself, which is kind of cool. 
One more thing I want to say about this particular name, that it reveals to us a third thing that this tells us about God, and this is that God is mysterious. God is mysterious. Names tell us something about a person, uh, especially in the Bible. Uh, we learn things about people from their names. But with, God name, with God's name, we're not really sure what it means. And we're not even sure how to pronounce it. So we are learning something about God here, and what we're learning is that we don't know very much about God. His name tells us about himself, and what it tells us is that we don't know him very well. He is vastly greater than we can imagine. And so a couple of implications of God revealing his name, and I'll spend the rest of our time here thinking about implications of God's name, implications of God's name in our lives. Okay, and I'd like to just do a couple of them. And the first one is this. God is vastly greater than we can possibly imagine. God is vastly greater than we can possibly imagine. When we read this passage where God introduces his divine or proper name, what we get from this and what we get from the burning bush, if we can put ourselves in Moses' sandals, so to speak, is, is that God is vastly greater than we can possibly imagine, especially if you've grown up in church. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod, and it means a heavy weight or mass numbers. So you could use the word in the Old Testament, you kind of put on a kavod and go on a, go on a journey. It isn't just used, that word isn't just used in relation to God. You kind of put on a glory and carry it around. It's something heavy or it's mass numbers. And, glory, and, and God uses that word glory to refer to himself. He is glorious. And he wants to be glorified. In other words, he wants us to recognize and speak and, and act as if he is weighty and massive and awesome. And so when God introduces himself to the Israelites here and all through the Bible as God is describing himself to us, what he's after is to be glorified, which means us recognizing that he is glorious. He is massive. He is awesome. In Psalm 50, he says, I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. It's what Jonathan Edwards called the end for which God created the world. God wants to be glorified. Because he knows that he is ultimately glorious. There's nothing and no one more glorious than him. And so it is good and right for him to want us to see that truth and to recognize his glory and to worship him. And so he wants to be glorified. The purpose of the Exodus is that God would be glorified. God wants to be glorified. Now, so, but how do we glorify God? And it is not through arranging a worship service just right so that it plays with your emotions so that you'll feel something and get some kind of an, an emotional hit off of a certain song or style or presentation or rhetorical device that I use in the pulpit or whatever. That is not how to introduce people to God's glory. How can we understand God's glory? And it is, it, it is only by seeing God's glory that we can glorify him. It's not by trying to get everybody to have an emotional experience, but it's doing our very best to describe God accurately, to reveal the words of scripture clearly so that God 
is seen for who he is. That's what we're after. That's what we want to do in the pulpit. That's what we want to do all throughout our lives. What we want to do as parents with our kids is we want them to clearly hear what God is like. We want them to, we want, we are desiring and asking God to reveal himself to our people, to our children, to ourselves. Now, God helps us with this because he knows that we are bottom feeders. And he knows that we will obsess over all of the wrong stuff when it comes to how to worship and how we want to do it and all that kind of stuff. He knows that we're bottom feeders. And so he helps us, knowing that we are sinners, knowing that we are finite, he helps us to understand what glory is. And one of the main ways that he helps us to understand what glory is, is in the heavens. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So, let's say that I think God is good, but not great. Let's say that, you know, I feel good coming to church, but I don't feel awe, and I don't feel joy. Okay, so these are worship problems. Those problems exist because we're, we, we don't recognize, we don't believe in the, the deep parts of us and our marrow that God is glorious. Because if we did, then we would glorify him. We would be moved to glorify him. So what we need if we have a worship problem is to see God in his glory. And it helps to have this frame of reference, creation, as we look around and we see what God has done. So let me just give you a few different examples. Did you know that the sun is a million times bigger than the earth. That's amazing to me. I can't imagine that. The sun is a million times bigger than the earth. Uh, It would take, you know how long if you got in a space shuttle and went to the sun, you know how long it would take? Because in the movies it takes a couple of days. It It would take seven months. It's so far away. It would take seven months at top space shuttle speed to get to the sun. It's 93 million miles away from us, which is why it appears so small in the sky, but it's actually a million times bigger than planet Earth. And can you even imagine how big planet Earth is? Like just thinking about how big this thing is. And this little planet and this sun all appears in the Milky Way galaxy, which is so massive, our galaxy the Milky Way is so massive that if we were traveling at the speed of light, it would take 100,000 years to travel from one end of the Milky Way to the other. That's nuts. At the speed of light, it would take 100 million, or excuse me, 100,000 years to travel from one end of the Milky Way to the other. And let's say that we just wanted to travel to the nearest star in our galaxy. We just want to get to the nearest star in our galaxy. That would take 70,000 years at top speed, top capability of our current spaceships. It would take 70,000 years to reach the nearest star. And there are somewhere between 100 to 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. And that's just our galaxy. That's just our galaxy. How many galaxies are there in the entire universe? And we're not really sure because we can only see about 13 or 14 billion light years away from Earth. Presumably, there are galaxies beyond that that we simply can't see. 
there are 170 billion galaxies. And so, right, our, our galaxy is the Milky Way. There are 170 billion galaxies in the observable universe. And there may be, I mean, how many do you think there are that we can't see? What is the size? What is the shape of the universe? Do you know? Can you imagine? Is it infinite? Does the universe just go on forever? Are there other universes beyond our universe? What's beyond our universe? What physical laws are at work in the farthest reaches of space? We cannot comprehend creation, let alone the creator of creation. God creates this incredible thing, and we are like a blade of grass in all of this. I mean, just imagine yourself laying on a meadow, and it's evening time, and the sun is set, and you just watch this awesome sunset, and you're looking up at the stars. We are a very small part of what God has made. And the more that we learn about creation, the more that we learn about the universe, the more we realize we don't know, the more vast it becomes. God did this on purpose so that we would understand what glory is. We are a speck on a speck in a speck. (laughs) And God is great. I mean, the amazing thing, the amazing thing is that, I mean, not only is creation vast, but God made it. God is greater than creation. Psalm 97 verse 6 says, The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. So the way that it's supposed to be designed is that as modern science discovers something like a black hole or last week we found out that they didn't actually exist or however that works. But did you hear about that? But whatever it, who knows, black holes are not black holes, whatever they are. As we learn more about this, what we're learning is what glory is. We ought to feel like, oh, like we've always thought that in the middle of the Milky Way, the thing that kind of holds it together is this black hole, these billions of stars spinning around a black hole. But maybe that's not the way, whatever it is, we don't even understand it. And it creates that feeling of awe, which is a little bit like what God is like, except that God made that. Now, I have a good friend named John Toner. He makes pieces of furniture. They're great pieces of furniture, but I got to say that John is more glorious than his furniture. Like vastly greater than his furniture. Like you put up your feet on his furniture. I mean, it's cool. I would love for John to build me a piece of furniture. Hopefully he'll listen to this sermon and build me a piece of furniture because that's really cool. But, you know, John and I have been to Africa many times together. I'm not going to go to Africa with one of John's pieces of furniture because John is much more glorious than what he makes, even though what he makes is awesome. You see what I'm saying? So when we begin to see and we look up and we realize how vast it all is and how small we are, imagine how much more infinitely greater and awesome and powerful and glorious God is, the maker of all of this stuff that we can't even see most of. 
I'm afraid that evangelicals today have a tendency toward reductionism in all of this. But I'd probably be best to move on. For God to be worshipped correctly, we must deal with the reality of his name, which reveals his glory, his eternity, his unchangeableness, his self-existence, his mystery. I mean, just exploring this a little bit, do you see how great and glorious God is? Romans 11.36, for him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So his name shows us a couple of things. First of all, that he is vastly greater than we can possibly imagine. And also, this is the God who loves us. How's that? The God who creates something so awesome that we can't even really imagine it correctly. And we're not even sure that we can even see most of it. This is the God who loves us and promises to go with us. Exodus chapter 3, back to the burning bush. He's standing there knee knocking, hiding his face from this awesome God. And God says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. But wait, God, aren't you like paying attention to a supernova out there somewhere? Like, isn't there something more important? than a few Jews that are enslaved at a certain point of history? Are you serious? The God of all creation is surely aware of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them. That's awesome. That's awesome. Over and over, God reminds Moses, hey, hey, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, your ancestors. That's why I like you. Because I chose Abraham and you're his kid. And so on the one hand, through this incredible name and this this display of glory through the burning bush, on the one hand, God is revealing his immense glory, this mind-blowing glory. And on the other hand, God is revealing his personal concern for these individual people, these descendants of an ancient nobody. And so the extremes of this cannot be, I don't think they can be exaggerated as long as you hold them both together. You can exaggerate one or the other, but I don't think you can overstate how awesome God is and how much he loves us. You can say one without the other. God is so awesome and so we all feel terrible when we come into a kind of religious environment because he's so distant and so awesome and so holy and so on that we're just kind of like, I hope it's okay that I'm in here. But then, you know, on the other hand, oh, God loves you and whatever you want to do with your life and oh, it's Jesus and all of this kind of stuff. But if you hold these both together, there's no way to exaggerate them. How glorious God is and how much he loves you. He has adopted you into his family, this God who makes black holes, adopted you into his family. He is, I am, at every moment in time, God is. And God has promised to go with the Israelites as they escaped Egypt, head for the promised land, and he also promises to go with us by sending us the person of the Holy Spirit. And his names reveal glory and love, transcendence and imminence, power and tenderness. 
and it never changes. Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. That's a cool verse. It's because we live not just these short lives, but we live forever because God does not change. And so when God made those promises to Abraham all those thousands of years ago, those promises trickle down to us and we become family members by faith, grafted in by faith. When we repent for our sins and put our trust in Jesus Christ, we become Abraham's kids and all of those promises apply to us. And so God says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. We're always looking for this in people, aren't we? Dependability. Like, be there, not just next week and for a couple of years, but don't walk out. Like, be, let's do life together. Can we? Can we have a, a stable fellowship? And yet, this is exactly what God is. His name, His actions, and His word declare constancy. All right, so now all of this is important for us because God has called all of us to different stuff. God called Moses to go talk to Pharaoh. But what has God called you to? What has God called me to? There are lots of very difficult missions. How about motherhood? There's a difficult mission. It's also a great honor, and so I'm not going to make jokes about how hard it is or whatever. There's, it's a great honor to be a mother, but we can't ignore the difficulty of it. And we have these romantic ideas about what motherhood is going to be like, and then you find yourself sleep-deprived de- sleep and surrounded by <laughs> diapers and tantrums, and you're thinking, this is what I've been called to. Motherhood is a high calling, and God calls us to raise up children in the way that they should go. And God promises to go with us through all of the confusion and the stress and the grief you know, another, another high calling in this life is forgiveness. That's a tough mission. Forgiveness is a tough mission, but God calls us to it, and he promises to go with us in forgiveness. How about contentment? Contentment. Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's a classic. That's a Bible classic right there. Contentment. God has called you to contentment. In whatever situation that you're in. Okay, so we go through those moments, we've got to kick the cat, find a friend, cry a little bit and stuff, but get over it because God has put you in this situation and is he enough to satisfy you in this situation? You know, can, can the Spirit put that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness and all of that in you in that situation? Well, not this situation. God didn't know about how terrible this situation would be. Please, <laughs> It's hard. I'm not saying it's not hard. I feel bad for Moses having to walk back into his old house. That had to be really tough. So we're not going to make light of it. But God says, I'm going to go with you. We're going to be all right. Get up. Get up. 
Another high mission, go and make disciples. That's an intimidating one, isn't it? That's what you expected me to say probably 20 minutes ago. It's the ultimate, you know, God, please send someone else. (laughs) You know, I love the words of Mordecai to Esther. He said, look, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Another high calling. How about unity? Unity. If I was one of those kind of pastors, I'd had everybody kind of look around the room and make eye contact with each other. Unity's tough. Unity's a high calling. You know, you hear calling and you think, oh, well, that, that's missionaries, that's a pastor, and I'm just, I'm just a Christian. <laughs> but, you know, God calls us to fellowship with sinners. He calls us to live as brothers and sisters. So many frustrations. So easy to walk away, to slander, or worse. Ephesians 4 says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What does that look like, Paul? Let me tell you. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Interesting, isn't it, that it's called the unity of the Spirit? Because unity and fidelity and steadfast love among real people requires superhuman virtue like unity of the Spirit. So God's name has many implications in our lives. We could spend five more weeks just playing with this little idea. God's name, Yahweh, and this burning bush incident has so many implications in our lives. He is vastly greater than we can imagine and therefore worthy of worship and obedience. And so this great and vast and awesome God, that's the one who promises to go with us in all our callings, in all our situations. Let me just close with this. In the Gospels, God introduces us to another name of himself, and that name is Jesus And here's what Jesus says in John chapter 8. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, this will send chills up and down your spine. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. (laughs) Now they knew exactly what he was talking about. And so they wanted to stone him. Because they knew exactly what he meant by that. Messing with the grammar. He knew exactly. He was saying, I am that I am. Like, when Moses heard God say, I am, I was the one that said that. And so they're figuring, we got to stone this guy. Jesus is revealing himself as the great I am. But, you know, he also calls himself Emmanuel. God with us. John 14, 18, Jesus says to his disciples, and he's been telling them, look, I'm going to die and then I'm going to leave. And they're kind of freaking out. And he says, I know you're freaking out, but listen, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. 
And Colossians chapter 1, 27, the riches, it talks about the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's amazing. So we serve a great God together. He is vastly greater than we can imagine, and he deserves way more interesting and passionate worship than we ever give him on an individual basis and as a group. He is awesome. He is completely, totally awesome and deserving of obedience so that we'll go wherever he tells us to go and deserving of our awe. But you know what? He always goes with us and he calls us to freaky things. He tells us, here's what I want you to do. This is going to be hard. And every bone of your body is going to feel ripped apart here. But I want you to go. I want you to do this and be faithful in this. But it's going to be okay because I'm going to be with you. The God that makes nebula, I'm going with you. We're going to be okay. Let's close in prayer. Lord God in heaven, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us so powerfully, so clearly through your word and in any ways by your spirit. In any way, reveal yourself to us and help us to see your glory. Let us catch even just a glimpse of it as Moses asked for. uh, Help us to see you. Let us see your face. Let us see your glory. Let us understand your glory. Make us better worshipers. And God, we, we also thank you because we know that we are loved in a totally undeserving fashion. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for adopting us into your family. And God, I pray that you would uh, give us clarity about the things that you've called us to do. Help us to do those things. Give us boldness and confidence to do that stuff that we just got to do. We thank you that you've promised to go with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.